This Janet Mefford Today archived broadcast is brought to you by Bible League International. Please help us send 1,200 Bibles to persecuted Christians in Asia. $5 sends one Bible, $35 sends seven. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 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 or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This Janet Mefford Today archived broadcast is brought to you by Bible League International. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Welcome, everybody. We have all heard the old axiom, that government is best which governs least, and that resonates with us, especially as Americans. But government is also necessary, yet unable to solve all of our problems. So given that fact and the reality of our nature, what is the best way to achieve happiness and also human progress in life? We're going to talk about it today with Dr. Anthony Davies. He is the Milton Friedman Distinguished Fellow at the Foundation for Economic Education and Associate Professor of Economics at Duquesne University. And today, we'll be talking about the new book he's co-authored with James Harrigan who both host the podcast Words and Numbers the book is called Cooperation and Coercion How Busybodies Became Busy Bullies and What That Means for Economics and Politics Dr. Davies it's great to have you here how are you I'm well. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. You've outlined in your book that cooperation and coercion are the two ways that humans work together and that government, I think this is important, is naturally coercive. Why do you think that's important for us to understand? I think it's important to understand because we we achieve a better, a more healthy society if we use the right organizational principle for the right problem. So there are some things that coercion is is suited for. For example, we want to prevent people from harming each other. We want to prevent theft. We want to prevent violence. We want to prevent environmental degradation. This harm to each other is is best protected by a coercive force. Right. However, most most everything else that we do is best arranged in a cooperative way. And, and so what you see here, once you start to see cooperation and coercion, you see that government is a powerful tool, but it's a tool that should be used in a very limited way. Well, that's right, because, you know, we will find oftentimes the government is not necessarily cooperative. All you have to do is walk into a DMV to find that out. Right, exactly. You know, and that's the interesting thing. We think about government is cooperative because, well, we get to go and vote and we all have a say. But that's not cooperation. Cooperation is the ability, yes, to engage with others, but it's also the ability to walk away when things aren't working out the way you want them to. And that ability to walk away is completely absent in anything that government touches. Yeah, that's totally true. And and yet we have all of these politicians today, which you point out in the book, seeming to inflict their knowledge on us, seeming to think that their ideas are going to solve all of our problems. And I think a lot of Americans have bought into that. If we just go along with politician A, B, or C, that guy will finally fix everything that ails us. And it's such a naive perspective. How do you think that people came to the to the idea that somehow government was capable of solving all of our problems when history shows it certainly is not? That's a really good question. And we come to that through fits and starts over the course, quite literally, of decades, possibly centuries. And what happens is every time something comes along, and in this country, it seemed to have started around the 1920s, 1930s with the stock market crash, something comes along that scares us. And 
and we look for answers and politicians come to the fore and they say, I have the answer. I have a plan. Just elect me and I'll solve this problem. And so we elect the politician. We turn over some of our liberties, give the politician more power. And of course, the politician isn't any better suited at solving the problem than the rest of us. But what happens is the politician, the government now has no now has more power. And you keep repeating that every time something comes along. The latest case is the covid virus. We turn to the government. We say, please fix this. Save us. We're afraid. And we hand over more power to government. Before you know it, government has far more power than the founders ever intended. Oh, totally right. So how does this fit into human nature? Because you do discuss what people fail to realize about human nature and as it pertains to cooperation and human progress. Why is that an important part of the discussion, do you think? It's important because we have this tendency to ascribe um, otherworldly powers to politicians. And so we imagine that they're capable of solving all these problems they claim to solve, to be able to solve. And the problem is politicians, no matter how smart they may be, no matter how well-meaning they may be, simply don't have enough information to be able to make decisions for us that are better than the decisions we can make for ourselves. And you see this play out with the COVID situation. You have politicians saying the answer to this is just to lock everything down. Well, locking down may have been the right answer in New York City. It may have been the right answer in Los Angeles, but it was not the right answer, I don't think, in much of the heartland. And the problem is the politicians simply didn't have enough information to be able to fine-tune their decisions to people's particular circumstances. That is very true, because that was something that came up quite a bit uh, after the first few weeks generally had passed, where they said, why are we shutting down Idaho when they have hardly any cases? Nobody wants to get the coronavirus, but certainly the hotspots were elsewhere. And, And does that speak, would you say, to a, a greater issue that we've come to grapple with, which is government being huge can impede human progress as well. In other words, if you're ceding power to one federal government entity in too great a measure, then in fact, you're undermining your own progress by you know kind of turning your back on localism and, and the problems that localism is better at solving. Very much so. And we see this repeatedly when government steps in to solve a problem. And we're starting to see it evolve now in higher education with the cost of higher education being high. And we say to the government, do something. And the government steps in and does something. And more often than not, not always, but more often than not, actually makes the situation worse. And what happens in a in a cooperative venture, if some if things were getting worse, we'd walk away. But we can't do that with coercion where the government's concerned. And so the politicians say, well, it didn't work because we didn't do enough of it. We just need to spend more money. And so we get more government. And before you know it, you're in this situation where the problems that you're calling on government to fix are actually problems government created yeah. over the course of interference over decades. Yes. What would be an example of that when you're looking at some of the things that ail our nation right now? And when did we cross the line on that, on that score, would you say? I think we started to cross the line back in the 1920s, and I'll give you an excellent example of this. We, we call on the government through things like the Affordable Care Act to to fix the problem that many Americans lose their health insurance when they uh, lose their jobs. And this is a bad thing. We need, we need the government to step in and make sure that doesn't happen. Well, you know how it happened? It happened because 
Back in the 1940s, the government was concerned about wages going too high and creating inflation. So they imposed wage controls. They said to employers, you cannot raise the wages on your employees. And so how did, how did employers go about attracting new and talented labor? Well, they offered them things other than wages. They offered employer-paid benefits like health insurance. And before you know it, health insurance is now attached to the job. And now when you lose your job, you lose your health insurance. And we turn to the government, we say, this is a problem. Look what the employers have done. The employers didn't do it. The government did it way back when it started telling employers what they may and may not pay their workers. Yeah, that is such a great point. And so the the other thing that comes to mind when you're talking about that is when Obamacare was implemented, a lot of people were saying, well, why don't you just allow people to carry their insurance policies across state lines and make some adjustments there? But instead of having a little fix here or a, a bigger fix there, it was, no, we need to overhaul the whole system. And is that part and parcel of the, the problem of government, that they just want to do something? something huge so they can go back to the voters the next election cycle and say, here, we did something huge, even if it doesn't work. I think I think it's that it's part of the nature of the thing. Politicians, their mindset is government. This is what they do. And so when they see a problem, their knee jerk reaction is what can government do to fix this? It seems never to occur to them to ask the question, what could government stop doing that's causing this? Good. Yeah. And so you get this cascade of more and more government. Well, that's the problem, because why don't we see more politicians who truly want to serve their country asking that question? Because, you know, not everybody's the same. You would think more people would actually ask that question. And there I have to put the blame squarely on the voters, because we turn to politicians who say who make bold statements, who say things like, I have a plan to fix higher education or to fix health care or to fix poverty or whatever it is. And we say, yeah, this guy's got a plan. Let's elect him. When really what the voters should be doing is be is behaving much more skeptically of saying, is it really possible that you could have a plan? I don't think so. I'm going to vote for the other guy. I think that's really smart. We're going to take a very short break. Dr. Anthony Davies, his book is called Cooperation and Coercion. We'll be right back on Janet Mefford today. This is Janet Mefford. We're partnering with Bible League International on Fan the Flame, Bibles for Asia. That's the theme of our new campaign. And our shared goal is to send 1,200 Bibles, both to new believers and to those who've been praying many years for their own Bible in countries like China, India, and Nepal. Imagine strengthening the faith of a new believer in China like Washi, a 30-year-old wife and mother of two who overcame illiteracy two years ago and is yearning to read her very own Bible. Or Jirish, an 80-year-old man in India who followed Hinduism for decades, but is now a new Christian determined to follow Jesus Christ. You can join the Janet Mefford listening family in sending a Bible for only $5 or $20 for $100. Call 800-YES-WORD. That's 800-YES-WORD. 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Just look for Fan the Flame Bibles for Asia. Thank you for caring.
The Ministry of Preborn is dedicated to helping save preborn babies from abortion through ultrasound, and even in this time of national crisis, preborn is there. Here's Dan Steiner, president of Preborn. No college classes and sheltering in have led to an explosion of unplanned pregnancies. Women are panicked about their pregnancies and wanting to abort. Our crisis line is the busiest it's ever been. Here's Catherine, one of our crisis line operators. Girls are scared and often seek an abortion as an easy way out. Girls are often desperate being pregnant in this pandemic. With your help, we are able to be here for them. The Ministry of Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the country and the direct competition to Planned Parenthood. Would you join Preborn in the cause for life? For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds. To donate, just call 855-402-BABY, 855-402-2229, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Call 855-402-BABY. Thank you. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. Great to have you with us and great to have with us Dr. Anthony Davies. He is the Milton Friedman Distinguished Fellow at the Foundation for Economic Education and Associate Professor of Economics at Duquesne University. He's out with a great book with James Harrigan called Cooperation and Coercion, How Busybodies Became Busy Bullies and What That Means for Economics and Politics. So, Dr. Davies, can you talk a little bit about who these busybodies are? We were talking a little bit about government overreach and and how they always want to come out, it seems, with a big plan to fix everything. Government can fix everything. Everything, instead of saying, what can we actually stop doing that would help the people? But how does the busybody angle fit into this scheme? The busybodies are people, we've had them with us since the dawn of, of human society. People who are going to stick their nose in your business. And you're not harming anybody. You might be harming yourself, but you aren't harming anybody else. And maybe you're not even harming yourself. But the busybodies have an opinion as to how you're living your life. And so they're going to tell you, you know, what you should and shouldn't do. We all have relatives that do this, right? Yes. But now, take, take the busybody and empower him with government, and he becomes a busy bully, yeah. where he turns to the government and he says, I don't like the way this guy's living his life. I want a law that forces him to live the way I think he should live. And you have, for example, in Philadelphia recently, they passed a law imposing a special tax on sugary drinks, because the busybodies decided that people shouldn't be drinking these sugary drinks. We should make it harder for them to do so. And so we have this tax. And this is the essence of the busy bully. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. Chicago did the same thing, and then they had to take it back because so many people got upset and said, why am I having to pay more for a Coke when I go out to eat? Yeah, and the essence to avoiding this is to, is to recognize with some humility that we're all different. We have different tastes, we have different preferences, different circumstances, different abilities. And because of that, a decision that is right for me may not be right for you. And for me to step in and say, well, you need to do this thing that I think is right, is to completely ignore the fact that we're completely different people with completely different circumstances. Yeah, that's right. That That's the difficulty. And you have 330 million people and there are a lot of different special interests. And some groups would like to wipe out others in terms of their rights. And it, it becomes very complicated. You know, going back to the issue of rights, though, I thought this was an important part of your book. When you're talking about rights being both natural and negative, we have government recognizing our rights 
rights. They don't grant us rights. Our inalienable rights are given to us by God. And, and then you have the negative rights, which are freedom from sorts of rights. Can these coexist effectively, would you say, given human nature? Certainly we have over 200 years of history in America saying, yeah, they, they've coexisted pretty well. But lately people are wondering how much longer will we cling to these rights and be able to freely exercise these rights? What, what, where do you come down on that? This is a this is a very interesting point. And when we use the word rights today, we tend to mean something very different from what the founders had in mind. When the founders talked about rights, they meant negative rights. That is your right to be free from coercion. So my freedom to speak is the right to have to prevent the government from coming in and, per, and stopping me from speaking. My right to exercise my religion is my right to have the government not come in and tell me what religion I should, I should follow and how I should worship. Right. Those are negative rights. Right. Today, when we talk about rights, we tend to think of them in a positive sense. So we talk about the right to health care. And that's very different because when we talk about the right to health care, that's not a right that involves holding the government at arm's length and saying, don't interfere with me. Rather, it's a right that invites the government in and says, take something from someone else and give me this thing. Hmm. And the problem with positive rights is we can't all have them. If I exercise my positive right to health care, Where's the government get the money to provide me with health care? It's got to take it from you. Yes. And all of a sudden, we are no longer equal people under the law. I have preference to you. Well, that's right. And that's why we have such a conundrum. And it seems these days we have people just wantonly making up what they want to be a right. Have we forgotten what rights are? Is that part of the problem here? I think we have, we, somehow we've, we've equated the word right with, with good. And so when, when someone says, well, we, everyone should have a right to health care, I think what the person really means is health care is a good thing and people should have it. And I agree 100%. People should have health care. And to the extent that we're able to help those who don't have health care, we should help them. But it's a very different thing to say that, for example, I as an individual have a moral obligation to help the poor among me. That's very different from saying the government should come in and forcibly take from me and give to somebody else. That actually degrades my humanity because it makes me no longer a free agent who has to make a moral decision of give to the poor or not. It rather treats me as simply a source of revenue. It dehumanizes me. Yeah, you're totally right about that. So how would you say cooperation and coercion, that dynamic, applies to specific issues? You get into some of them in the book. For instance, taxes. How should that dynamic be balanced when it comes to taxes? Taxes in this country have become largely coercive in in that what we have done is we have decided over time that people, some people in the country should have the right to take from other people in the country. And so we're in a situation now where more than half of the federal budget is not the government spending on things for people, bridges, infrastructure, military, these sorts of things. Rather, more than half the federal budget is the government simply stepping in, taking from somebody's wallet and giving it to somebody else, just transferring the money back and forth. That's clearly coercive. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So what would be a better way? I mean, clearly nobody wants to pay taxes. Nobody's going to throw confetti in the air. Yay, take more of my money. But, you know, you can't really get around that completely, can you? The coercive angle of of collecting taxes. Yeah, you can't get around it completely. And I wouldn't suggest that we should, because there are some things the federal government, any government should do. So if we talk about, well, the government should protect people from from uh, violence, 
due to others. Yeah, well, that requires a police force. It requires a judicial system. And so there's going to have to be some taxes here. I think the problem with with how we govern is instead of asking the same kind of question that a household would ask, which is how much should we spend? Instead, we just make a list of all these things that we want. If we started the other side and said, okay, what do we owe each other? Let's pick a number. We owe each other 20% of our incomes. Okay, put that money on the table. That's what politicians get to spend. Yes. And so what politicians would then have to do is say, well, if we want more health care, we're going to have to give up something else. What are we going to give up? I don't know. Let's work that out. That's not the way we do government here. The way we do government here is everybody makes this list as if it's Santa Claus. Hmm. And then the federal government goes and spends all this money. And when it runs out of money, it turns around and borrows. Yeah. And so we end up spending far more than what we should be spending. Well, it's so maddening to watch that because for those of us who actually try to stay within our budgets and our households, if we ran our households the way the government runs its budget, we wouldn't be in existence anymore because we don't have the ability to print our own money. But we also understand what happens if you blow your budget month after month after month. You get so deep in the hole, you can never get out. And and we look at the federal debt. There it is. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I think people dangerously so misunderstand this. They tend to think of government as this source of money. And all we have to do is just spend more of it. The government's got piles of money. No, it doesn't. Every dollar the government spends comes from your neighbors. It either comes in the form of taxes or it comes in the form of reduced spending. We're going to spend less on your police force, so we can spend more over here or something else. Or more likely, it comes from borrowing. And who pays that? Our children, our grandchildren, and their children. Right. So as we ask the government to do ever more, what we're really doing is asking the government to use its force to take money away from our neighbors, away from our descendants, and give it to us. Well, right. So does it seem to you that what we're really seen is voters are looking for more coercion rather than more cooperation? I think so. And I think they look for coercion because cooperation is is something that we tend not to appreciate. I think we don't appreciate it because we do it so frequently. It's like second nature. So we get together, we decide, I'm going to get together with some guys and we're going to, uh, we're going to play cards every night or we're going to go out golfing or whatever it is. And if these are nice people and we have a good time, we'll all do it again. And if they're not, we'll break off and I'll go do my thing. You go do your thing. That's the essence of cooperation. When it works, we do more of it. When it doesn't work, we walk away. And we do this every time we buy something. You go to the grocery store, you pick up a gallon of milk and a dozen eggs. And if you had a good experience and you like the price and the quality is good, you'll go back, you'll do it again. And if it isn't, you won't. That's the essence of cooperation. And when we behave that way, what happens is things that work persist and things that don't work are stopped. That's very different than what happens with coercion. With coercion, often the things that don't work, we spend more money, we, the politicians, spend more money on. Yeah, you're exactly right. So from an economist's perspective, and, and when you're seeing what's going on with our economy, you know, we're spending all these millions and millions of dollars now to do COVID relief and these sorts of things and paycheck bailouts and all the rest. Where does it end? Because for the average American who isn't necessarily an economic expert, we can look down the road and say, when you're already trillions of dollars in debt, at what point does the bubble burst from having tolerated a a bloated government that just spends money wantonly? 
Yeah, I think it ends at the point where it becomes mathematically impossible to continue. And unfortunately, I think that's coming perhaps 15, perhaps 20 years down the road. One of the things that's going to to usher that era in is when we find when politicians finally own up to the fact that Social Security is bankrupt. Yes. It's running out of money as it is. Social Security Board of Trustees themselves say that Social Security will be insolvent within 15 years. When that happens, all of a sudden we're going to face a problem of either we're going to have to raise taxes significantly or the Federal Reserve is going to have to start printing much more money, in which case we're going to get tremendous inflation. But the fact of the matter is, mathematically, the federal government cannot continue spending at the the rate it has been. Well, that's the real danger, and that's why people need to pay attention to what's going on. And also, pick up a copy, Cooperation and Coercion, really interesting book, How Busybodies Became Busy Bullies and What That Means for Economics and Politics. Dr. Anthony Davies with us, and it was so good to have you, Dr. Davies. Thank you very, very much for being with us. Thank you so much. You are welcome. God bless you, and we'll be back right after this. This Janet Mefford Today archived broadcast is brought to you by Bible League International. Please help us send 1,200 Bibles to persecuted Christians in Asia. $5 sends one Bible, $35 sends seven. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 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 or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This Janet Mefford Today archived broadcast is brought to you by Bible League International. You're listening to Janet Mefford Today, and now... Here's Janet. Welcome back. Here's a question. Why are churches in Nevada still limited to gatherings of 50 people while casinos are allowed to operate at 50% capacity? One Nevada church has now filed a request for an injunction with the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit in order to right this wrong. We're going to get some details on it now from Ryan Tucker, Alliance Defending Freedom Senior Counsel and Director of the Center for Christian Ministries. Ryan, thanks a lot for being here. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah. uh, Calvary Chapel, Dayton Valley is the church fighting these restrictions. What are the COVID-19 gathering restrictions that Governor Sisolak has put into place for everybody in Nevada? Well, if you're a casino, a theme park, uh, a water park, uh, restaurants and bars, they can operate at 50 percent capacity. But churches, on the other hand, they can only operate with 50 people. So you could have you know, a thousand person out of church auditorium and have 50 people sitting in there, but you can literally have thousands upon thousands of people, you know, pulling the slots in the casinos in Vegas. And apparently that's okay. Yeah. What is the justification for this? How do they, how do they say that it's okay for us to have 50% capacity in theme parks, but churches can't have more than 50 people? What's the reasoning? Uh, I, I have no idea. <laughs> uh, and, and hence, hence why we, we filed the lawsuit, but I can, I can tell you this. I mean, this church um, is willing to abide by all the CDC uh, regulations, health and safety protocols. In fact, um, we have in our filings a list of uh, several different procedures that uh, they are ready, willing, and able uh, to institute. And so it makes no sense why you can, you know, like I said, go to, the, uh, go to Vegas, pull the slots for hours on end, sitting there for hours on end. But for some strange reason, you know, in in the religious context, uh, the state does not uh, trust those individuals. So 
it's unconstitutional, and uh, we've taken that argument to the Ninth Circuit. Yeah, maybe COVID-19 avoids theme parks in Nevada the way that it <laughs> avoids protests in Oregon. It's it, kind of one of those it, things. It's it's crazy. The, the the virus doesn't know the difference. It doesn't know where you're sitting at any given yeah. point. And, you know, even courts have indicated that. There's been um, some favorable decisions across the United States, and, and they pointed out the fact that these governments trust people, I guess, in secular settings, but the moment they step into a religious environment, they don't trust them anymore. That is and really that's weird. Not only unfortunate, it's unconstitutional. Well, I know there was this district court judge that previously ruled against the church. What was the reasoning mm-hmm. here? Because when I'm reading through some of the things that this judge said, it sounds wacky to me. What was the reasoning? Well, I, I think it's in part based on you know, the, the the recent what we call South Bay decision. That was a case out of California, and it made its way all the way to the United States Supreme Court on an emergency motion, which mm-hmm. was in a very difficult uh, motion, perhaps the most difficult motion or requested relief one can make at the highest court. And, of course, that was the California order that was in play. We're dealing with the Nevada order that's much different than the California order, but the judge still relied on that and uh, show, you know, reliance on, I guess, local officials and, and their determinations. And we obviously disagree, and we're disappointed with that, but we're hopeful that we'll get a uh, positive result of the Ninth Circuit. Yeah, one of the things this judge had noted was that the 50-person cap is not strictly enforced by Lyon County officials. I guess this is the county where the church is located. Mm-hmm. And that also casinos have put in measures that are more restrictive on their own. But so what? I mean, the issue is the government officially picking and choosing favorites, isn't it? That, that's exactly right. Uh, you know, and, 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 you know, the reason that, that certain casinos may put plexiglass between players is because you have slots lined up, you have people sitting at poker tables that can't socially distance, and, you know, none of those things are in play in, in the church setting. And keep in mind, I mean, this church, you know, not only has it, you know, made uh, very clear that it, it'll follow these health and safety regulations, it's also agreed to limit its church services to 45 minutes. Now, you know, we all know that when those casino doors open, people don't go in there and spend, you know, 10 seconds and walk out. People are in there for hours on end in close proximity to one another. And uh, they're coming from, you know, not just the state of Nevada, but across the United States. And so it's really unfortunate and, and nonsensical. And, you know, I, I think we've got uh, very solid arguments and uh, we're hopeful that this church will be able to, to meet in in a safe uh, manner here soon. Good. Well, I know the U.S. Department of Justice has weighed in on other cases of churches being treated differently during the shutdowns. Do you expect that the position of Attorney General Barr will make a difference in your injunction request for this church? Well, we certainly would always welcome uh, the Attorney General's um, uh, position uh, commentary on on the cases we, we filed. In fact, uh, the very first case that we filed related, related to uh, COVID-19 restrictions uh, was the one that Attorney General Barr first commented on. That was a case in Mississippi involving right. the drive-in services. Right. So certainly that would be uh, helpful. And uh, But my hope is that regardless of, of uh, who weighs in uh, from the outside, that, that the court will see the uh, fact that these these fundamental freedoms that that we all um, you know love and and uh, cherish will, will be recognized in, in their decision. Good. Well, when you're talking about leaving it to the experts, and I know this was kind of mentioned also during the Supreme Court's consideration of the South Bay Church case, as you just mentioned a couple minutes ago, when you're talking about leaving it to the experts, don't the experts have to have some? 
important reason why they would shut down a church or restrict a church from meeting? I mean, at what point does the expert get overridden by the First Amendment? That's what a lot of us are trying to figure out during the coronavirus. Yeah, great question. Well, you know, the interesting thing is uh, we actually uh, filed our own expert report in in this case in Nevada. The state also had their expert. And if, if one were to actually go and find and look at them, there's really not a lot of difference between the two. Uh, the the state expert didn't really touch on the point you just raised uh, because uh, because they can. Yeah. The, the fact is, as we talked about before, the virus doesn't know the difference. You can't simply trust individuals in a secular environment and say, but when you walk into the church, somehow you're no longer to be trusted. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, I, it's not just common sense, but, you know, again, we think that it's uh, – Uh, a prevailing argument in the courts as well. Well, it would seem to me also, as we've gotten more data on the coronavirus and the spiking cases, does it have to do with testing? Does it have to do with more serious, you know, development of the coronavirus spreading? But we do know that the death rate of the coronavirus is quite low. The mortality rate, and it's hitting nursing homes much more hard than it's hitting schools, for example, or, or daycare centers or things of that nature. To what extent do these experts who are making these decisions or these officials who are making these decisions have to justify shutting down a church or restricting a church more than they would restrict a casino or a theme park? Well, you know, one would hope that they actually, um, you know, that the experts uh, in the medical industry are communicating with, with elective officials. And, and uh, you know, certainly this church, like all the other churches across the United States, um, are uh, you know, supportive of keeping its its flock uh, protected and safe, and and certainly Calvary Chapel Dayton Valley uh, is no exception uh, to that. But really, what kind of communications are or realistically taking place um, is anyone's best guess. Yeah. Uh, we we don't know the answer to that. And you know, I, I think you know more importantly beyond the the expert question again, if if the state looks at it and says you know, certain gatherings should be limited at 50%. And for some reason, you know, the church across the board is being lumped in with that. It's not being treated less. Then that's one thing. But here we're talking about theme parks, water parks, restaurants, bars, casinos. And it's it's complete nonsense to say that those uh, businesses should be open while churches are um, either shut or have uh, more draconian uh, restrictions than, than those industries. It doesn't make any sense. No, it doesn't. So what is next in this case, and how do you intend to argue this when you're seeking this injunction at the Ninth Circuit? So briefing will be done this week. So it'll be uh, midweek uh, when briefing is, is done. That means the case will then be, or the motion itself, the request for the injunctive relief will be properly before the Ninth Circuit. At that point, it'll be in their hands. So they'll have briefing before them, and then they'll Lead, read the legal papers and, and make that determination at that point. We'll just wait to see how the, the court rules. Well, it's an important case, and every single case that I, I know you guys have done a lot of good work for your clients, other churches that have been seeking First Amendment freedoms in the midst of a shutdown. It's all very important, and we'll keep a close eye on what's going on with Calvary Chapel, Dayton Valley, in this case from Alliance Defending Freedom. Ryan Tucker with us. Ryan, thanks a lot for the update and for doing what you do. We really appreciate it. Thank you. All right. God bless. We'll be right back on Janet Meffer today.
This is Janet Mefford, and we're partnering with Bible League International on Fan the Flame Bibles for Asia. Our shared goal is to send 1,200 Bibles from the Janet Mefford listening family to our brothers and sisters in Christ in Asia. In this region of the world, Bibles are scarce for many reasons, including the remoteness of where people live. In the Philippines, church planters and evangelists trained by using resources from Bible League International travel many hours by car, boat, and by foot to lead Bible studies in remote places of the country. Let's send them the Bibles they need in order to share Christ and to see lives transformed for His glory. You can join other Janet Mefford listeners by sending a Bible for $5 or $15 for $75. Just call 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Just look for Fan the Flame, Bibles for Asia. And God bless you for caring. Are you in need of a healthcare program? You're in luck. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up throughout the year with memberships starting as early as the following month. And there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $199 per month, and there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance, so your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more by calling 855-565-2561. That's 855-565-2561. Or visit libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Well, it's been about two years since we brought to your attention the Revoice Movement and Conference. I can't believe it's been almost two years. We're going to have our second God's Voice Conference coming up soon. We've been delayed a little bit by the pandemic, but our whole goal with launching our God's Voice Conference was to point out that gay activism was making a huge push into conservative evangelicalism. And that was why we wanted to sound the alarm and continue to sound the alarm. And the reason that's so important is because now you're beginning to see more and more shifts within evangelical confines, not only with some of these celebrities embracing so-called same-sex marriage, but now you even have a so-called evangelical celebrity supporting and celebrating her young daughters coming out of the closet. This is Jen Hatmaker. You might know that name. She's a progressive Christian. She's, I hate that term, by the way. She's just a progressive. Let's just say that. And she has a podcast. She's a best-selling author. She came out affirming same-sex marriage a while back. So she's been on the wide, wide road uh, for a while. But this is the story from Faithwire. One of the daughters of Jen Hatmaker, who a few years ago made waves when she embraced the lifestyles of the LGBT community, recently revealed she's gay. At the introduction of the lengthy conversation between Hatmaker and her daughter, Sydney, the podcast host said the episode was not an announcement because her family has known for quite some time that Sydney is a homosexual. It was, though, the first time she'd shared the revelation with her listeners and her readers. I want to play just a short excerpt of this particular clip, which Hatmaker put on her Twitter feed. Listen to this. When I think about you struggling through that by yourself, I could just sob. Yeah, me too. And I think I, don't know, I get really like emotional talking about it. 
I just have so much compassion for myself. I just feel like I'm like 13 again. You know what I mean? Mm. Yeah. I'm just like kid who just like loved Jesus and I like realized I was yeah. gay and I was just scared and alone and I just I wanted to have it all. Like I wanted to have my family and God like and my future and I didn't think I'd be able to have it all. All right. Well, that is Sydney there speaking with her mother, and she had so much compassion for herself. She's referring to the fact that she knew she was gay, the story says, at around 12 years old, admitting she had pretend crushes on boys growing up. She said she struggled intensely with her faith and sexual orientation for years, noting the nail in the coffin was when she was Googling different theological perspectives on homosexuality and came across an article that referenced her mother as loving toward the LGBT community, but not affirming. Sydney explained a particular moment, which Hatmaker described as a terrible day, when she picked up a book by an unnamed pastor who didn't know where he landed on homosexuality, but knew that he loved the gay people in his life, systematically going through the Bible and verse by verse, coming to the conclusion that gayness is sin. How could you not know from the Bible that homosexuality is sin? It's all over the place. Uh, That just destroyed me, she told her mom, recalling having a full meltdown that day. She said, I read the whole thing in one day, just fully feeling in that moment like God didn't love me. Hatmaker argued many pastors preach as if only heterosexual people are in their congregations when in reality, quote, every single church is just filled with gay kids and gay moms and dads. I'm going to challenge that. I don't believe for a moment that every church is filled with gay kids and gay moms and dads. Filled? Filled. Just filled. Well, maybe where you go to church, not in my church. I I don't know what you're talking about. And she said, it's just so irresponsible to break their hearts. Let me just say something very, very clearly. This is heartbreaking because this is Bible-free Christianity that you are peddling to your own daughter. And in the description of this podcast, here's some of what she says when she's describing this particular show with her, with her daughter. And she said, this is Jen and Sydney Hatmaker's experience. In this episode, Sydney and her mom tell their story so that parents, family, and friends of LGBTQ plus kids who need trustworthy voices to lead them into love and affirmation will find hope here. First of all, you're going to find hope, not an affirmation of your sin. You're going to find hope in understanding that Jesus came to set the captives free. That the same Jesus Christ who laid down his life for you and rose again from the dead to reconcile you to a holy God has fully paid for your sins and you can find forgiveness for your sin and you can find freedom from the bondages of sin by turning in repentance and faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the real gospel. This is a fake gospel. This is a gospel that should be accursed, as Paul talked about in the book of Galatians. This is to be accursed because it it is a lie. It is total deception. There is no hope in this. In fact, you are affirming people in something that will damn them, not just because it's homosexuality, but any sin that anybody affirms as being okay to commit alongside a profession of Jesus Christ, you're lying to that person. You're jeopardizing that person's soul when you affirm sin, any sin. This is just reprehensible. And I'll tell you something else. When you look at one of the articles, for example, that I pulled off First Stone Ministries website, this is so good. This was from a few years ago. Gay Christian Oxymoron is the name of the article by Kent Paris. And this is what he says. Our words truly matter. 
We must be wise and discerning in their use. It is supremely important when it comes to homosexuality that our reference point for the terminology we use is that revealed by God through revelation, the Bible, that which has always and only been understood and taught by Orthodox Jews and Christians for thousands of years when it comes to sexual morality and immorality. We need to remember that the novel gay theology that has sought to reframe and displace traditional exegesis and interpretation of any and all passages having to do with homosexuality is less than 50 years old. The move to welcome, accept, and affirm practicing homosexuals into the church is a recent development that represents a radical departure from biblical revelation. This reality in itself should cause Christian leaders serious pause, and yet a new grace theology is infiltrating portions of the church, and many are succumbing to deception and being led astray. And I'll tell you something else that really is telling. On her Facebook page, somebody posted this. Jen Hatmaker had this to say, and this just kind of explains everything. To any interlopers tempted to Bible-splain, deliver shame, drop some love the sinner, hate the sin trauma, or criticize our family, our theology, or our kid in any way, please know it will be the last thing you say on this page. My team is having a block party today, block and delete. This is our party and our story and our incredible daughter and your disapproval, judgment, self-righteousness isn't just annoying. It is traumatizing to LGBTQ people and I won't have it. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. I'll tell you something, that is a different spirit than the spirit of the born again Christian. I'm just gonna say it because it is a different spirit. Think of what David said in Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That really resonated with me when I was thinking about that verse because I thought the attitude that I have to have always has to be, Lord, search me, try me, know my thoughts, see if there be any grievous way in me, any sin in me, any sinful thoughts that I have, and convict me of my sin, dear Lord, so I can repent of my sin and fully love you and fully obey you and fully follow your word as written and revealed to me as a sinner in need of mercy and grace through Jesus Christ. That is to be the attitude we are to have as Christians. We are wrong in so many ways. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? None of us is perfectly sanctified. Not until we are finally with Jesus Christ. Many of us make errors along the way. All of us make errors along the way. We need our thinking corrected. And how can we have our thinking corrected apart from the word of God? If you are gonna rely on your feelings or on worldly philosophies or on trends that are less than 50 years old, where no Orthodox Christian in the history of Christianity has ever tried to reconcile homosexuality and Christianity as compatible with one another and then fully go on to say, I'm going to embrace this in the life of my own child. I cry for this child. I really, really do because she needs the gospel. She needs to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. You don't have to be in the bondages of sin. Nobody is born a homosexual. God made you as a woman and you are compatible with a man. And it is not impossible for anybody to leave behind homosexuality. Just look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Such were some of you, but you were washed and you were sanctified in Christ Jesus. There is hope for every sinner struggling with any kind of sexual sin. 
no matter what it is. There's always hope. But if we put into a special category one sexual sin and say this one is untouchable, then we are denying the word of God and we are denying the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ to transform sinners. And if we are going to be people who say there are certain sins Jesus can't redeem, then we are denying the very God who saved us. And I will say that to my dying day. Pray for this young lady, pray for her mom, because they are deceived and they do need to see that the transforming power of Jesus Christ is available for anyone who will turn and repent. So do pray for the Hatmaker family. This hour is brought to you by Bible League International. Help us send 1,200 Bibles to persecuted Christians in Asia. $5 sends one Bible. Call now, 800-YES-WORD. That's 800-YES-WORD. 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com.